Yo, Katie, tell them what they're about to listen to. No. Oh. Happy 2021, guys, and welcome to the O. I'm really excited about 2021. I mean, 2020 had so many lows. Uh, we lost some dear friends, family members, um, you know, some things that we thought were, we were going to do fell through. Just a lot, a lot, a lot of really, really painful moments. And I'm hoping 2021 is a better one. Um, there's a lot of positivity in the air. We've got, um, you know, the vaccines are rolling out. Um, you know, the, uh, you know, America's got a new president. <laughs> I mean, there's just a lot of, of good stuff that's happening. So here's praying that 2021 brings us a lot of joy and a much better news than 2020 and also for the old podcast we're quite excited about 2021 because we've got a lot of amazing guests and so many great things happening um especially on my part uh, i've got a feature film coming out later in the year and uh amongst other things i mean it might not be released this year but at least it's uh, most of you're going to start hearing about it amongst other exciting projects so I'm not going to delay any further. I'm going to introduce you guys because some of you are probably bored of hearing my intro at the moment. So I'm going to jump in into today's episode. I want to introduce you guys to a design legend here in England. This man is the definition of the word creative hustler. And his name is Mark Walters, a.k.a. Mark One. Mark Walters is a 25-year veteran in the UK creative industries. With key interest in design and film, he's an award-winning creative director, designer, film and music director, award-winning producer, motivational speaker, business owner, husband, and of course father. Mark has won numerous awards such as the BAFTA, Promax, Buff Award, Portobello Film Festival, and the RBE Music Award. He's also worked for media companies including the BBC, Red Bee Media, Virgin Media TV, Leaving TV Group, and of course his very own Mark One Group. All I can say guys is welcome to the new age of renaissance. It's just interesting how so many people in the creative industry are, you know, wearing many hats and at very proficient levels. Um, it's just exciting to see. So this episode, we talked about the business of creativity. It was a very insightful episode. It was two parts, obviously, <laughs> because just, just, there was just a lot to unpack. And I'm hoping you guys will find it as exciting and as informative as I did. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Mark One. Mark, welcome to the old podcast, brother. Thank you for having me, man. Much appreciated. Love it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And um, I think at the end of this conversation, a lot of people will understand why I'm excited about having you on this episode because um, there's a lot of conversations we've had. Uh, Mark is one of those people that I have very long phone conversations with and I leave the phone conversation thinking deeper and deeper about the situation of the creative industry and as well as my, you know, my, my interest in little life. So I'm hoping he could bring this same um, thought process to this um, conversation we're about to have. So, Mr. Mark, I want to start, first of all, by allowing the audience, the listeners, to have some more insight into you. Because, you, know, like, you know, like the saying goes, um, our background to some degree influences like the roads we walk, the choices we make in life. And you've made some very interesting choices. So for people to understand that they need to know where you come from so just take us through your early years and also how you got into the creative industry so basically i'm born and raised in east london and uh, as a youngster 
I was into music quite a lot, into hip hop music in the early eras of the hip hop game. And mm. um, I embraced that culture totally. Mm. So I would, I would break dance, I would rap. Um, at that time, I never really produced music because I didn't have any music equipment, but I would do the art form quite extensively. I'd do a lot of graffiti, like in, on paper. Yeah. And, and uh, as a young, young man, the first job I had that was graphic-based was for the local youth centre in East London, where I lived, where they were putting on a hip-hop event where they had some out-of-towners coming in, which were quite big characters at the time, big guys from America and stuff. And uh, I'd went to the youth centre and I'd seen it, it was all happening. And I'd written down um, the information that I saw on the poster in the youth centre and I took it home and then I designed it myself as a graffiti poster. Um, put the price on it, the time and whatnot. And I took it to the youth centre and they couldn't believe it. They said, well, mm. you did this. And I said, yeah, yeah, I did it, I did it. How old and were you then? It. I was, I must have been about... I think nine and a half, ten. Oh, nice. Wow. I had that initiative to kind of like take the information and then redraw this thing. I saw this hip hop graffiti in a magazine and I kind of copied the style of the outline and then rejigged it my own way, putting the arrows on it and stuff. And they photocopied it and they pasted it all around the area. Mm. So my artwork was all around the area and I was absolutely like totally in shock that I'd done this piece of work and then I saw it everywhere. That was my first moment of understanding that there's a there's a element of graphic communication in, in this, even though at that mm. point I didn't know what graphic communication was. Mm. But that was my first legit job where I'd mm. done a piece of work which was communicating mm. to the community and it was mass produced. And at the event when we went there, it was done as a big post. It was all over the place. And so that gave me that idea of actually I could do something with this. And, and my father was instrumental in pushing me in towards mm. graphics. Um, he, he backed that quite substantially. So I was doing lots and lots of graffiti type stuff. And at school, I was doing lots of art. And I didn't really care about my other subjects, which was looking back, was a bit ignorant, to be honest. Yeah. Okay. But art was my main focus. And then from there, I went on to A-level art. I got high in that. And I went to work as a student, a junior, mm. when I left school for two years. So most people were either going on to college and stuff. Mm. I did sixth form for a year and then I went on to work as a studio junior for two years mm. in a graphic design company based in Farringdon in East, uh, beginning of East London, EC1, yeah. which was at the edge of, edge of the city. And what that involved was creating bits of artwork um, using a PMT camera, which is a big camera where you photograph bits of type and okay. you cut it all up and you paste it onto pasteboards using wax and you create physical pieces of artwork when you get all of the, the, the copy, all of the type from the typesetters. Mm -hmm. For those who don't know what copy and type is, it's basically all of the, the text that would go in a magazine or an advert. You'd get all that stuff and you'd, you'd cut it all up and you'd paste it all up, mark it up using rotary pens. Wow. And you'd send, send it off to the printers. And our main client at the time, the company was called Kite Design, and our main client was a massive advertising agency that was in um, Clarendon, Clarendon Street? I think it's Clarendon, the Clarendon Road, I can't remember, mm. but it was basically in in Hatton Gardens in that yeah. area where I worked. So I would deliver artwork and I was to the agency, so I was kind of like a delivery kind of 
trainee designer and I'd learn how to create these pieces of artwork. Mm. And after two years of doing that, I realized that I could create really highly finished things with my hands, but they didn't mm. have any substance. Okay. They didn't have any um, reason for being, they just looked good. So I would do flyers for people and all sorts of stuff, but there was no real deep idea. And at the end of that two years, the country was being hit with a recession. Mm. And, and also the, the Macintosh computers were now a new thing and I walked into the advertising agency and uh, one of the guys in there that really liked me said look you need to learn how to use this young man because this is the future and he turned uh, it on and it started speaking and I was watching it for five <laughs> minutes going what is what is it <laughs> it, started, it started speaking <laughs> yeah it was talking they made it talk <laughs> so, they must have had a joke about me when I left there because I was like what is it like what what, what do you mean it's the future how does it work yeah and then um the, the the building that I was in, the, the office next door, they were typesetters, so they used to do all of the text. They'd set mm. that they had these massive machines that would do all of the text. And I saw them, my company, and a number of other companies in a 12-month period all go bust. And over wow. that 12-month period, I'd gone back to college. Okay. So after my after my two years when the recession was kicking in and the Macintoshes were coming out, I kind of smelt the roses and thought, you know what, I'm going to go back to college. Mm. and really study design properly because I'm aware that how to create nice things using uh, my hands mm -hmm. because there was before just before computers kicked in but I don't know how we get to the end result like with ideas mm. so I, w I went back and studied for four years so right. you, you could say you could say I did a six-year apprenticeship where I did two years actually live in a in a um, design company yeah interfacing with advertising agencies and stuff Mm -hmm. And then going on to working, um, well, not working, studying intensely for four years, graphic communication, mm. um, which, which was great for me because having had that work experience, I was the only person on my course, which there was about 40 of us on this course, yeah. that knew why I was actually there. I, I, knew, okay. well, I knew what I was learning and why I was learning it and how it applied when I was going to leave. Mm. So that's kind of, that set me up to the man I am today and to the people that who know me because when I was at college, I was totally focused. Mm. Um, and I, I didn't let one of those days go by over that four-year period where I wasn't actually doing mm. stuff. Like I wasn't in the library or learning how to edit. And as the computers were new to college as well at that time, yeah. I was getting up to speed on the computers. I didn't own one because they were too expensive at the time. So I would, I would turn up to college before everyone and as my mm. parents are a Jamaican origin mm. there was Jamaican cleaner who would clean the um, studios so I befriended this this, this guy mm -hmm. and I'd get there early and he'd let me in before everyone was in there even the lecturers wow. right wow yeah you know the hustle the hustle you know it, it comes from my area where I come from it's like the inner city kind of council state where I, the hustle I was hustling him he was mm. cool with me, let me in, and the lecturers yeah. would come and go, how, how did you get in? And I just played dumb. I was like, oh, the door was open. <laughs> so I was in there learning how to use the computers before everyone could get in there and get on the computers, because it's only, I think they only had 10 computers to 40 students, which is, you know, you can do the do the math. Like, yeah, getting on yeah. it was very difficult. Wait, so let me interject there quickly now, because I'm, I'm trying to picture what's going on at the moment. So and at age nine, you you stumble upon the power of art 
art communication. And then in between that time to sixth form, you know, you're still in that space and then you have this internship. Now, I just want to understand what motivated you even before the age of nine, because it's almost like you, from the get go, you already had purpose built in, built up in you. Was this, was this your dad? Was it like, that's very perceptive perceptive because I used to say I wanted to be a graphic designer before I even knew what graphic design was. Mm, mm. Right, I used to say that as a, as a, as a small child, as about five. I'd say, they'd say, "What wow, do you want to be?" And I'd say, I, "Well, I'd say I want to be a graphic designer." I, <laughs> I don't even know what it was. <laughs> <laughs> how, man? How did you get to that? Uh, honestly, because it's man. How? How? I that's, don't that's know. Not... I don't even really. Come on. I know that my dad. Right. Yeah. I know that my father was quite instrumental because he's a very strong Jamaican man, mm. and he was instrumental in all of our upbringing i.e. me and my brothers yeah and um he was entrepreneur so he's mm. a motor vehicles mechanic by trade but he mm. would in the evenings do minicabbing to get extra money mm. and he managed to invest that money in businesses and all sorts of stuff that he was very wow. entrepreneur very before his time mm. and um he he would tell the story so it could be my dad's seed to be honest he would tell mm. the stories of moving um, advertising people around the West End in his car mm, and mm. he would hear what they were talking about and how much money was attached to it and the types of work they were doing and when I started to show interest in art so my interest mm. became before my dad started speaking about stuff mm, he would mm. encourage me to go down that line mm. um, so one of the um, factors that I kind of missed out because there's, there's lots of details I've kind of sure, skipped over sure. because of time stuff, but one of the factors where my dad was instrumental was when I um, left school and I was trying to get the job at the design company I'd gone to the job uh, centre and they'd said that um, I need to be more realistic and do a manual job instead of design Wow! so my whole my whole attitude has always been like I don't care what they've got so I'm going to do what I'm going to do I don't really care yeah. what they say yeah. so even though I was very courteous in the job centre, when I left there, I was like, I'm not listening to this woman. Um, <laughs> do, you remember, do, do, you, do you remember her name? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> I don't remember her name. I don't remember uh, her name. But I remember it was a woman and she was she, she was very condescending at the time because I was a youngster. Yeah. And I was quite respectful at that moment. And she was there telling me, you need to look for this, need to look for that. But I persisted. Mm. And when I went back there, they started to get me interviews at those type places. Right, mm. so it's because of my persistence in there. We're going, well, I'm not listening to that. And yeah. so when I went back there, they said, if you look for any manual jobs, I said, nah, I want to be a designer. Mm. Wow. <laughs> so, the, wow. So, they, so I was very persistent. And so they started to send me on those jobs. And I'd been for about nine interviews and I'd mm. been turned down on every single one. And I went to see my dad and I was telling my dad that, yo, dad, like, they're, they're stopping me from... Um, I can't get any of these jobs. And my dad yeah. said to me, and what, what what are you wearing? What clothes are you wearing? And I showed him what I was wearing mm. and he took me to buy a new outfit. Wow. <laughs> wow. Because he said, you can't, you can't wear that to interview. And without a word of a lie, the clothes that he, we, uh, we purchased, Yeah. The next, in, the next interview I got, I got the job and that was the kite design and I was there for two years. Painters of paint. No, paint us a, a picture. What, what, what's the contrast in the clothing? What was the cloth before and after? So basically, I would go there quite casually. I'd wear trainers, I'd wear jeans, maybe a hooded top, t-shirts and stuff. Quite casual. Yeah, And yeah. back then, design, was, design wasn't what it is now. So this is a mm. long time ago. This is almost 30 years ago. It's long. Mm. No, not mm. 30 years. Back to me, 27 years ago. It's a long time ago. A long, long time ago. Okay. Um, um, so it, wasn't, it was quite... Uh, people were quite smart. 
um, casually oh, right. smart, like shirts right. and stuff. So I was going there very casual. Mm. In today's world, you could go to an interview like that and it'd be totally accepted. But back then, it mm. wasn't. Mm. Um, so when we went out, he bought me some trousers, shoes, and a shirt and jumper. So wow. I, I totally changed how I looked and I got the job. And what was really interesting <laughs> in that, in that <laughs> it's mad, isn't it? <laughs> it's mad, <well. laughs> but what, what was interesting in that lesson though, because that lesson has defined me mm. as a designer, perception is everything. Yeah. So when people say they shouldn't change who they are and all this kind of stuff, I never listened to that because the objective is always to win the opportunity over. So if the way you're being perceived is stopping you from winning, you've got to change the way you're being perceived in order to meet that objective. Now, mm. most people might argue argue with me and say, why should I have to do this and all this kind of stuff? One of my arguments to that is I don't believe in the word should because it doesn't believe it doesn't mean anything. When you interrogate okay. it, there's nothing behind it. Mm. And two, if you're not getting through because certain things are a certain way, i.e. these people have biased in their minds or microaggressions or whatever you want to call it racism or whatever yeah if they have that um it's it's the individual's job now to understand the arena they're in mm. and to understand what is necessary to win mm. Mm. do you know what mm. i mean so that's the lesson i got out of that i got well, okay i was going in this way but actually what may be more appealing was when i looked a bit like the guys i was going to be interviewed by and then as a designer, I can't tell a client, I'm going to do for you what I want to do for you because I think it's right. Mm. I've always got to meet the client's objectives. Mm. So I see, I saw that back then when I was a young man, it's the same kind of lesson, i.e. I now got the job, I'm mm -hmm. being employed, I'm learning design on the job. Um, it's given me two years of crucial information. So when I went back to study, I was way ahead of everybody else because mm. I had practical experience in the field. Yeah. Um, I, I also, I was the only black guy in the studio of 12. Mm. Um, and they all embraced me. And I'm coming from an area that is quite culturally black and my friends are black and white and Asian and stuff, but I'm culturally that way but they all embraced me so I learned how to get on with people I understood people I understood differences in people I understood the perception of how people were perceiving me so that was quite an important lesson mm. going from school to trying to get a job in the creative industry and then getting one that also created my resilience because a lot mm. of um, people are here will say, oh, I couldn't get this and they wouldn't give me that. And, but nobody ever gave me any of the stuff that I've done. I've always had to go, I've always had that attitude of, I'm not listening to them. I'm going to do it how I see fit. I'm going to push through. I'm going to learn what I need to do in order to get to the next stage. So that was a, cru a crucial lesson. What, what's, I mean, what's powerful about what you're saying is, um, you know, when you're in Rome, you act like Romans. Obviously, there's um, the different thoughts on that like you've already you, you already implied that in what you're saying that some people wouldn't agree with the, the the concept of selling out especially in the creative space right but what 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 i want to take you back to is the fact it sounds simple but this it's deeper than that it's just the fact that you changed the appearance to get in now and obviously you've said like Time has changed and now people are a bit more casual in, in, in the creative industry in terms of your look. Like people have all, the, the more expressive you are now, it's seen as, you know, you're, you're, you're an artist, you're that kind of person. 
my question to you now is this. Do you think that, do you think there is a case to be made on appearance itself? Like, do we have to stick to a formal code of appearance to be validated within, say, the design or the creative industry as a whole? Or would you say it's more about the work you produce? So what I'm saying is more personal branding in terms of the imagery or the work or both? I, I would say Jamaicans have a, t- a saying, everything are everything. Mm. And what that, what that means to me, to, to translate it into English, like everything is everything, is basically if you are a designer mm. and you haven't considered yourself as a piece of design, you shouldn't be in design. That's how I mm. feel. That's how ruthlessly I feel about it. Okay. It's like okay. if you haven't considered how you're going to express who you are in your environment and what that means to the environment you're in and then mm. translate that into your work, mm. then you shouldn't even be in design. Mm. That, that's how I feel about it because as a young man, it was totally different. Like I say, they, the computers wasn't there. And when I went into the trade, it was before computers. So it just that illustrates my age. I'm quite, you know, getting on in the yeah, years. You, but you, yeah, you're a young man. You're a young man. Let's, let's keep it moving. No, I'm, still, I'm, still, <laughs> I'm, I'm still punching young, but, you know, your, real Your knees ain't shaking, bro. Your knees ain't shaking. You stand no, properly, I'm, you know. My, my, my knees are very good, apart yeah. from if I do a 15K run. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there's a reaction to that, yeah. But generally speaking, they're very good. But no, no, no the point I'm making is um, your personal brand in today's world is more important than anything else. Hmm. Um, we, we don't do, as I say, back in the day, you'd walk to a, an interview with a massive portfolio, it'd be an A1 underneath your arm. Mm. Um, showing all your work now it's online it's a digital thing online where they can mm-hmm. just go and have a quick look and see if you're the person for the job sure um, and if that online presence doesn't reflect you you don't get the job so the first point of interaction with you as a designer as a brand is your mm. website without a doubt yeah. um, and second once they've seen the work and they know you can do the work then they want to know if they like you and whether mm. you fit into their attitude now people mm. may not forthcoming with this because there's certain um, things you have to adhere to in terms of you know fair trading and stuff however mm. the worst thing you could ever be doing is working with people that you don't actually like just mm. because they can do some design that are half decent um, so what does that mean that means you've got to consider who you are how you come across mm. and whether you're approachable likable um, and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So in saying what I'm saying, that's these are all considerations which mm. I would now refer to as design considerations because mm. when you're designing a piece of work, it's the same considerations you apply to a piece of work. Yeah. Um, so absolutely, people. if people don't like you, they're not going to work with you. Um, they may work with you on one job and never work with you again. Yeah. So if you're not if you're not open to discussion, understand the political, have some understanding of the political backdrop. If you remove the word I and and replace it with we, mm. um, it's very powerful way of working with people. And I've interviewed multiple people over the years. While at the BBC in a senior role, I interviewed quite a few people at um, Virgin Media, um, at Living TV, mm. and in my own company. Um, you know, it, 
doing third, getting third party people to do various projects for me. Yeah, I have to like I have to like them. If I don't like them, it's virtually impossible to do the work. So in what I've said, it kind of answers the thing: is your work is a reflection of you, and how you look and express yourself mm. is also a reflection of you. So it's both. It's everything mm. is everything. Everything mm. matters. That's you interesting, know. man. That's interesting. I think at the end of the day, right? There's a conversation that that's public, which is pretty much, and um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take it to to a part where could be quite divisive for some listeners but you have you have um black designers or black creatives who would say oh because it, the industry is predominantly um uh, you know led by middle-aged white men that we don't look like them culturally background wise we can't except if you know you're growing up in a, in a different society so there is that obvious barrier that limits entry or limits uh, progress to a certain degree. So so if I'm to say playing devil's advocate now, I'd say if I was in that situation, I'd say, okay, all right, let me change everything about myself to please this people hiring. Would that be one way to go? Or would it be the sense of, you know what? I'm going to express myself the best way possible and how do I make myself colorful enough for them to say, okay, you know what? We like that person. We, we want to, we want to deal with that person based on who they are as an individual, as a unique individual, which route would you advise? You know, I, I would, I would, I would advocate never changing yourself. Okay. I would never advocate changing. I think that's a, that, uh, that doesn't make any sense. So when I was saying earlier about the perception of oneself and mm. looking at oneself, what I'm really referring to is like you'll never have another mark, you'll never have another ogre. Mm. We we are we are individuals and our imperfections make us perfection. Mm. So what makes me annoying or whatever is is why I'm perfect and who I am. So the first port of call for anyone I always say is to truly understand who you are first and foremost. Because when you get into these places you will come out ultimately. Hmm. Um, so no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be advocating. But what I would also say to that is, if you were going into a place that is predominantly um, European, hmm. and you are offering things that are totally alien to them, mm-hmm. you're not doing yourself any favors. Okay. Do you know what I mean? So so there is some give and take in that argument. For mm. example, if I'm in a place and everybody is Jamaican mm. and a white man comes in there and he has, he doesn't have anything to offer us um, verbally, um, humorously or whatever in any capacity, he's going to quickly be alienated in that space. He's not going to yeah. be able to connect because the connection is what we're looking for. Mm, so mm. it's all it's all about finding that point of connection yeah and fundamentally if a if a business or an organization is full of white males running it and they come from a certain class certain um, background then you as an individual it's your job to try and understand what that means Mm. For example, in the BBC, I would always wear a, a, I'd most of the time wear suits and, and um, 
ties and shirts and trousers quite a lot mm. when I first was in there and uh, that was because of the story I told you earlier when I went for sure. the job I realised that how I dressed so that became my code yeah and also I do like to like wear a suit I like to dress a certain way but also mm. back then as a younger man I, like, I used to like my jewellery as well mm. and mm. I used to have swagger and tracksuits and stuff so on certain times I'd just come in with all my jewellery and whatnot, and, and I would hear my white colleagues saying stuff that in today's world would potentially be deemed as not appropriate but I didn't care because it was true like I had swagger that was you that was you yeah yeah I was dripping I was up in there dripping like no one could tell me <laughs> nothing <laughs> <laughs> I oh, rolled through there like, I had the whole BBC a lot I had it locked down like, it was gold mad. chains gold tooth you know no, listen I swear <laughs> down I had, one time my neck was so heavy with jewelry I had neck ache in that night time <laughs> <laughs> but that was you man that was you representing Mark right that was that was you what, right? what, what I, what I learned like first mm. once what I learned was once you're in there and you're in these type places or you're moving around with people that are not of the same potentially culture background as you yeah is that there are similarities we're all trying to pay bills we all like a good laugh we all like social time we all have certain political objectives Mm. and we can agree to disagree we can agree to agree and you know the general thing is we all like to go to Nando's we all like Nando's yeah yeah yeah, I hear that right so, so one of the things I did at the BBC, right, right. So BBC is in West London, mm. and there's a West Indian place. I can't remember the name of it, but it's out on Oxbridge Road there. Um, and I would take my white colleagues to that shop at mm. lunchtime, on like to, to ex- so they could experience the food. And mm. the crazy thing about that is, one, they would never have gone in there because the shop looked a bit threatening to them in the way that it was presented. And again, there goes that whole present presentation thing. Mm. It, it, it was full of flyers. Um, the winners was always steamed up. There was always lots of people in there. It wasn't very clear what the offering was. <laughs> so what the offering was. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, you look, if you walk by from the window, you don't know what they're selling. <laughs> you might think you go in there and disappear. <laughs> and, and the window's misty, right? You can't see through nothing. It's always misty, especially in winter. It's mid- winter is misty. So what I would do is I would mm. take my friends there, my white, white friends and Asian friends from the BBC. I would take them to, um, I can't remember the name of the restaurant, but people will know it. It's a famous one down in West London there on yeah. Oxford Road. I'd take them there and mm. they would eat it. Then the crazy thing about it was on certain days where I, I wasn't feeling like West Indian food, they'd be dragging me there. Nice. After they had the, yeah, so, mm. so this is what I'm kind of saying. is like once I'd got my feet under certain tables and, and doing certain things, also a quick point, when I would be in the BBC in suits and stuff, what would happen is senior people would come into our room and they would come to me first. Yeah. They would go to my manager, they'd come to me because they just assumed I was the most senior person in the room because of how I looked. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, clocked, I clocked that, being that guy with that mentality of understanding when things are going on from a little bit of a hustle kind of viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I clocked that they would come to me. So. I quickly became senior in the BBC one because I could do the work two because I could get on with people three because I did expose cultural things that were they'd never seen before that they enjoyed mm. but most importantly four I looked the part and acted the part mm. and that goes back to the point of where I had created myself as this person mm. so your question 
would you change yourself? No, I'm not going to change myself, but you're going to see facets of myself. So me dressing up in the suit is my church Sunday morning type thing. When my dad mm. would take us there, that's that. And then me now putting some chains on the tracksuit, that's me hanging out at the man there, or my crew, mm. my boys, whatever, mm. hanging out with them. So they would see these different facets. So I became very likable, became quite senior, started flying all over the place, meeting clients and all sorts of stuff because mm. within my senior management, they could see that Mark doesn't have a problem looking formal. Mark mm. doesn't have a problem in swagger. Mark doesn't have a problem with these things. Mm. And also his work is always on point because you know, I'd always go over and above the call of duty to do my work. So I think you should never change yourself. You should figure out the environment that you're in, figure mm. out what you have to offer that environment, and then tailor package certain aspects to achieve your goals, to win, mm. Mm. to win. That's how I, I mean, answer that question. That's interesting, man. So, so one of the things I'm hearing from this is just emotional intelligence, isn't it? Just able to decipher where you are and try and play—I wouldn't say play, uh, play the game, but more or less just brand yourself to the point where you're meeting needs. You're, you know, different touch points, like emotional touch points, psychological, uh, social. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think it's absolutely. It's, mm, go on. Sorry. Go on. Sorry. So no, go ahead. No, 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 no. I just, I just said at, at the end of the day, it's almost like there's no one size fits all um, solution to this in any shape or form. You know, it's almost. I, and, and one example I bring to this is Jay Z, right? Or, or and you have people who are, he's, you know, you're a certain person, very strong in a culture. You're obviously unapologetically, you know, hip hop, but at the same time, corporate America wants to be with you and they've made you very wealthy during the process. But then you have the counterparts, these counterparts who, you know, they're, they're struggling to, to attain such height. Um, yeah. yeah. I think, I think, I think Jay-Z is a very good example because you'll see Jay-Z in suits now, right? Mm. But you'll, you'll also see him in chains. Sure. You'll see him in, you'll see him in an art gallery mm -hmm. or you'll see him hang, hanging with his boys. Mm. So what we, when I say we sometimes our people um, do is sometimes we create a situation where we feel people should embrace the whole of us all the time mm. which doesn't actually exist because when you go home in front of your mum you don't present the same side to your mum as when you're hanging out with your boys mm. so we don't do this naturally but we expect in workplaces for our people to take us wholeheartedly when Jay-Z now he's a good example of someone who actually knows how to manoeuvre mm. you know he knows how to manoeuvre in a room full of sharks is just one of his lyrics and yeah. so you've got to know you've got to know where you, in that in that lyric why take from that lyric is you've got to know where you are and how to act accordingly hmm. so you said when in Rome act like the Romans, Romans earlier and I agree with that statement however I also have an added statement for that statement if I'm in Rome and my army's equal to Rome I don't have to act like the Romans hmm. <laughs> I hear that I hear that <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah, yeah. but if I'm, in, if I'm in Rome and I don't have an army equal to the Romans I better start acting like these Romans <laughs> I hear that, man. I hear that. I think there's an interesting conversation in the in the sense that it's it's there is a part of um, the industry, the creative industry, where 
people would want to rebel and say, look, man, this is who I am, accept me, blah, blah, blah. And then there's a conversation that comes afterwards, which is I'm not given enough opportunity. So what you're saying makes a lot of sense and it's stuff that cannot be disputed. Now, this brings me to another point. Um, when you talk about your interests, because you have so many interests and you also have situations where you have people who are extremely talented but they they lack they could say oh you know i'm not giving this opportunity because people want me to be in a certain space and all of that specialization right you are a man of many talents bro you i mean you're into music you're into film you're into design you know you speak um professionally you you, you write you're, you're you know you're writing a book but the creative industry loves specialization. They they frown they frown to some certain degree they frown on the Renaissance mentality. So let me know what are your thoughts on this? Do you think it's essential to specialize or do you think Renaissance is the future for the creative professional? I think it's very dangerous to specialize in this current climate. Well, um, because, however, co because of COVID, right? <laughs> or what? No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just asking, man. Like, it's current climate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you better learn how to pack them shelves, boy. Um. <laughs> COVID has unleashed many talents, bro. I'm telling you, man. It's just not man, COVID, funny. COVID got me, got my head on a swivel, man. I'm just looking around for any opportunity. Um. <laughs> COVID. Oh, boy. No, I, no, I think... Right, basically, um, so I didn't finish my whole career trajectory, but I'm gonna make a quick point. So at the beginning of sure my career, yeah. mm. like I said, there was no internet, right? There was no computers, there was no internet. And over the last two decades, I've seen the internet come mm -hmm. and become a dominant force that we can't live without. Yeah. And in, in that time, I've seen skills that were specialist mm. be, be destroyed and removed totally. I saw it in the design game in the early days when I mm -hmm. before I went back to college. And then I saw it as the computers evolved and started to do desktop. So when I was a young guy in the BBC, me and another designer in there called Paul Mitchell, who's now quite a big director in the in the United States, another yeah. black guy, good friend of mine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when we were we were in the BBC, we did some of the first animations on desktop computers for broadcast. So two black guys did that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the first. There's quite a few firsts actually we did in the BBC. Take us through the first, um, man. Just so give, a, give us a sorry, man. Give us a quick one minute first. Roll out the first. So, roll, roll it out. So there's a channel called Channel U that mm -hmm. is now making a resurgence, which was an urban channel back in the day. We did the first urban music video, which was Iceberg Slim's Bad Boy. Nice. Um, that that channel has gone on to spawn multiple careers that are big now. Mm -hmm. um, so that was one of the first that we did down in England. A lot of people don't know that we did that. We were the guys behind that that video and what that video did for British culture. Because before that, British underground artists didn't have a platform to play any of their music. Yeah. Um, so we were instrumental in doing that. Yeah. Um, also, the interactive... Um, when you surf your television <laughs> and you look at your programs... Um, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, the EPG. The EPG. Hmm. The initial EPGs were designed in conjunction with Kingswood Warren, which is a development part of the BBC. Hmm. Um, 
where I kind of came in on the tail end of that project and did small amounts of stuff. Paul Mitchell was leading that, but we were doing that, which was the first forerunner to all of the EPGs. So we did the development work of that. Nice. Um, also, the first um, HD broadcast on the BBC was the World Cup 2006, hmm. uh, which I did that opening sequence, which was one of the first... Um, it was the first live HD broadcast on the BBC. And mm. um, that was the job that I won a BAFTA for. Um, oh, when nice. I directed all the- so that was a first. Um, what else have we done? Well, that's just a few. That's, that's your minute there. We've done a few I mean, more, but that's... Yeah, I mean, to be honest, that's, that's, that's heavy, man. So, so two things I want to I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna you to even spend more time on. Talk us through... Because <laughs> this this is very interesting. So the BAFTA you want for the Ident, right? Well, for the, it was for the opening sequence. For the opening, oh, the opening sequence, sequence. two thousand and six FIFA World Cup match of the day opening sequence title. How, how how did you get an opportunity, man? I'm sure you're looking nice and dandy, and they're like, "Hey, do this for us," and you you pulled it up. But just talk us through the whole process. Like, how did you get the opportunity and the execution? <laughs> Because that's got an interesting right. story to it. Go for it, bro. Well, yeah, right. So basically, I'm going to go back a couple of steps, right? Because it took a lot of work to get to that spot mm-hmm. to, to be able to able to even know that that was an opportunity. So when I um, left college, I was headhunted by a design company, and back then we were doing CD-ROMs, mm. and um, the internet wasn't a thing. Like I said, it was just beginning. And there's another first. I did the first um, I did the first BT it was BT and back then Yellow Pages Hmm. which were search engines and they were just really basic graphics but I did the first websites for those oh wow okay uh, at a company called Inform which was based in Farringdon um which is interesting, mm. actually, because I started in Farringdon as a junior before, and I went back to college, and my first kind of job was in Farringdon, where I was mm. freelancing. So I was doing that work, and the company I was working for, Inform, did this thing at the Business Design Center, where I designed all of the touchscreen kiosks um, mm. graphics. Mm. And back then, I was heavily into 3D. And this was okay. when 3D was in its infancy like no one was using it and I was one of the main guys doing it because of a friend of mine had taught me how to do certain things was at college um, and a friend of mine from the BBC came down same guy Paul and saw my work and said why don't you come down to the BBC for a week worth of freelance mm. and I ended up being there 50, 15 years off of that one week of freelance <laughs> oh wow that was it <laughs> but that, and this, this, but this that is Paul was, Mitchell yeah but, you make Paul Mitchell right yeah but mm. but the reason why that was possible was all of the stuff I said earlier mm. is because when I went there I knew how to act how to dress who to mm. talk to how to maneuver all these things that I said earlier so by that time I'd done two years as a student junior I'd done four years study and I'd come back out as a freelance guy I knew what I was all about I knew what I had to do and yeah. actually every every job I went for I was offered a job so wow. that's really interesting Mm-hmm. So that was after that was after what you could call a six year apprenticeship of two years of work, and what happened to me before I got work, and then the four years. So every job I was offered something, nice, and, and nice. I don't, I wasn't like all different various design jobs I went for, and I went all over the place. Mm. Um, I got lots of freelance opportunities. So 
back to the BBC. So I went to the BBC, started doing this stuff. BBC started changing and whatnot. Um, and I went from interactive services into what was called Media Arc and then BBC Resources. So these are all different companies within the BBC that was, as it was changing into this new thing you see today, was getting all these different opportunities. And then when I was in BBC Resources, we turned into BBC Broadcast. And when I was in BBC Broadcast, I went into BBC Sport. So the BBC mm. Broadcast loaned part of its design team to BBC Sport. So okay. I would service I would service all of the sports output with me and four other designers. Mm. And I was a senior, senior designer in that room. So I had designers underneath me and I had a creative director I had to answer to. Mm. Um, what was interesting about that was I was headhunted from interactive um, design to do that because for me, interactive was getting a bit stale. I'd done it for quite a few years. That's why you did uh, the. That's why you did the EPG. Yes, that's mm. the beginnings of it. Because in interactive, we did lots of stuff. Like I did the first. I did quite a few first actually. I did the. I did the first on, on net, and on net was a platform which was interactive television using the internet. Okay. And it's done by a company that was based in Battersea that had come to the BBC to use its its services. I'd done a pitch and I'd done my, and they liked my designs, mm. and t- and I did all the interface work and whatnot. Which I don't know how it went down. I think it went out there. People were using it to buy stuff and whatnot. Yeah. So as interact as I've done quite a bit of stuff in interactive that done really well. Mm. Um, I moved into sport, and that was good because I had to learn. And this is the whole point where you have to be humble and kind of know who you are and whatnot. Yeah. I realized I didn't understand time-based art because up until that time, I'd been doing interactivity and interactivity needs a person to interact with it. So when sure. you're designing, you're designing what they call today UI mm-hmm. or the user experience or UX. I was one of the very first designers to do that before it had a name. Mm. So in interactive services, we design all this stuff and then when I moved into Moving Image, I thought graphics would animate over um, three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. You, okay, so I, I hear this. I hear this. So, so, so I had to learn quick, quickly. Mm, that mm. I had to reapply my knowledge and understand where I was at. Even though I was senior, mm. I had to really, and it only, it only literally took a couple months really mm. for me to go switch on real quick. Yeah. Because back, back then I was very... I'm young, my mind's very fresh. I yeah. adapt really quickly to any problems. And coming from interactive, the problems in interactive are way bigger. Mm. They're, they're, they're huge things. Like we did the first BBC website. Mm. Quite, a few, quite a few first, actually. We, we worked on that with our department because the department we were in at one point, they were scientists in programming. And, yeah. and me and Paul in that department as the only designers. And then I moved into sport. So while we're doing sport, um, I became design director in that space Mm. and the World Cup was coming up. And prior to the World Cup, I'd done a lot of match of the day opening sequences. Mm -hmm. So if people remember the one with the badges coming out of the stadiums, that was one of my pieces of work. Oh, nice. I'd done done the FA Cup one as well. I'd done quite a few actually, about three or four um, match of the day that goes to that match of the day traditional music. I'd done quite a few of them. so knowing that the World Cup was coming up, I was working on the rebrand of BBC Sport Football mm. for the World Cup. So we were doing all the World Cup graphics. And then my creative director said to me, um, do you want to do the opening titles 
or should we get someone else? And before she could finish the sentence, I was like, yeah, of course I'm going to do that. What are you talking about? <laughs> you just seize the opportunity, man. Straight up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, I had to just take it. Like, it was like the World of Cup. So that it could, I knew that it meant filming Ronaldinho in Spain. I knew mm-hmm. it meant filming Gerard and Rooney and Thierry Henry and all these characters yeah. that are huge icons to everyone at the time. Major footballers, great footballers. Yeah. The prime of their career. So I said, yeah, yeah, I'll definitely do it. And she was, she was saying, well, we're going to have to get another design director on the rebrand. And I'm like, cool, I've done enough work <laughs> on the rebrand. Get, yeah. You know what I mean? Get, mm. get, get another guy in. And um, um, so I went off to do the titles. And as you rightfully said, I recognized it was an opportunity. Mm. It was a big opportunity because everybody in the country is going to see it. And not just yeah. the country, the extended countries like in Spain and wherever where there's lots of British people they're all going to see the feed hmm. so I knew that I had to make the players look and act like gods arriving in Berlin because it was in Germany this that competition um, so we went out on the road for um, to film it which was great so we went to all of the players where they were I think it was about three or four days yeah. in, diff- in Spain and over here um, and when I went to Spain, I went to film Ronaldinho. That was a story in its own right. I'll give you a little bit of that story. That, that We got there. There was a really dodgy-looking Russian guy that looked like KGB. Was and he boy? said, yeah, he's... <laughs> he looked like the KGB, man. <laughs> he had a suit on a cart, And he come out of the car and his eyes was all shifty. He was looking apart, you, so, you, you, you might say. And man, he was real, man. He, he basically... I'll give you the story because it's a crazy story. Um when I knew I was going over there to film him mm. I put I wore I wore a Puma tracksuit and I mm. put all my jewellery on and I had Converse trainers on mm. and I did that on purpose because I'd researched him and I knew that he's into jewellery and whatnot and that goes again back to that point when I went and got the job when I was younger mm. so mm. even if it was a part of me I wanted to make him feel at ease yeah. because I want to I want to win because that's how I come at all these things mm. so I, I wouldn't go there projecting this is who I am nah I need him to feel comfortable so I can mm. get my shots mm. so we arrive there we meet the KGB guy <laughs> 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 he's got this he's got this really good looking Portuguese girl with him yeah and I'm I'm saying to him why is she here he's saying because she's easy on the eye that's what his words were she's Are easy on the eye wow I'm telling you she's not nah, <laughs> 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 with a thick Russian accent as well I get it. He, said it like, he said it like this he said I said what is she here for he said cause she's easy on the eye <laughs> <laughs> oh man it sounds like a Schwarzenegger man like <laughs> listen man listen I didn't even know what he was talking about so I had to ask the producer what does he mean easy on the eye he goes Mark Mark she means she's good looking it's like oh <laughs> <laughs> oh man so the reason why he had her uh, and the way she and, and the way she looked is because hmm. she was her interpreter for Ronaldinho. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's why he had her there. Yeah. Um so he he was the he was the fixer. He was the one setting it all up for us. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but he wasn't a fixer from a production viewpoint. He was a fixer from the contact viewpoint. Yeah. So we go into New Camp and all of the big dons are training. Like all of the big guys who are playing for Barcelona and I'm like, right, they're all just in in touching distance mm. and it was press day so we go to the side of the pitch from the side of the pitch 
and we set up all of the green screens and all this stuff and I have pictures of all this stuff because my DOP was taking still imagery thank god yeah. so I've got images of all this stuff and um, we set it all up and then Ronaldinho comes out and he's going around the pitch because there's different sets of press people that he's got to talk to before he gets to us mm. so me being me coming from where I come from I'm watching going there's a guy with him and he's got a he's dressed like a soldier and he's got a gun on his waist wow <laughs> so I'm saying to myself that's mad we can't, yeah we can't mess around here we gotta be focused yeah so Ronaldinho comes over and because I'm dressed in a Puma tracksuit you can see a bit of jewellery in it he starts talking fully French Portuguese stuff to me I don't know what he's saying <laughs> 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 he starts talking so my plan of how I looked worked even mm, better mm, mm. it totally worked like he come he just he just felt like me and him were friends but I, I said I said I don't I don't know what you're saying mate like you're gonna speak to her <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah. easy, the easy on your eye lady that this guy's brought you gotta speak to her yeah so so I had briefed her quite quite like firmly before he come over this is what you gotta say to him this is how you gotta say it. did you get it yeah. and I asked her about four times did you get it did you get it did you get it mm. I had another guy with me from an advertising agency that had to film Ronaldinho and he'd brought some shoes of him and stuff um, like football boots for Ronaldinho to put on so mm. I said to my producer who set this up he said oh we set it up so I said no we're going first then because we've set up the green screen everything's set up we're going first so the other guy got really angry he was pissed off saying like what are you talking about now I'm here from the advertising agency and all that and I'm not saying anything I let my producer talk I was like nah we're going first so we went first and I was told I had 15 minutes to get this shot mm. so as Ronaldinho has agreed to do it and I was even shocked I was like what do you mean he's agreed he's like yeah he's agreed to do it so like, oh he wasn't even totally aware he knew about it but he wasn't totally aware of it mm. so I'm like okay right, I've got to get this in one shot so we do the first take and my DOP looks at me and he does you know like when you pull your hand across your throat like you're slitting your throat he's <laughs> like no <laughs> gotta do another one let's get another take yeah, yeah. he's like, he's like no, that's, it's not it's not good hmm. so I'm looking at and my producer's going well you've only got one more take I said before you said we've got 15 minutes we've only used 5 minutes <laughs> wow. he goes you're gonna have to get it on this so I said to the girl tell him this on hmm. this command do this do this do this so he does exactly what I say and the DOP looks at me and he gives me a little wink and he puts his thumb up. That's good. So I'm like, okay, cool, we got the shot. So we got it, the shot is in the sequence. It took two takes to get it, right? Nice. And that's unheard of for such a big thing. Yeah. But that, go, that goes back to, I didn't talk about it, but my preparation for that shot was immaculate down to the second. Mm. I knew exactly where I needed him to be every second and what mm. I needed him to do. So we got the shot, the DOP went like this. And the other guy, he gave Ronaldinho the football boots he put oh. them on oh. and they were too big oh wow so Ronaldinho took them off threw them on the floor smiled and got up and walked off <laughs> and that was it <laughs> well the other guy started trying to say stuff but he had a gunman with him didn't he <laughs> he had a guy oh, with man. a gun <laughs> so you're saying that that guy couldn't get a, sh a shot nothing he just that was it Mate, Back in London, they were talking about insurance, this, insurance, that. It was in the papers and all that about it. it wow. Was all it was wow, man. Like and I when mean, he was it, on the plane... Yeah. 
when we was on the plane, we just kind of separated ourselves from him because he blamed us because he said he should have went first, but but he didn't know I was the one going. Yeah, nah, you're not going. Yeah, man, that's bullshit, he, man. But if he hears this podcast, he's gonna now know it was me saying nah. <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm there to win, isn't it? I'm there to win. I'm he not could, there for should, Yeah, man, you should be better prepared, man. I mean, that's that's that, that just says a lot. That just says a lot. I mean, yeah. It, so that's yeah. Go on, go on. No, well, that's 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 the story of how we we we, we shot that sequence and mm. then produced, and it was shot on 35 mil film, mm. which was the last of those kind of things done because digital was all coming in, but we yeah. wanted that nostalgic feel, and then we graded it in and and done all the post-production at a place called Rushes on Old Compton Street and it yeah. was the first time they were using all their HD new equipment so mm. HD's like a done thing now but back then they just got all new equipment so it was the first for them it was their first big HD sequence that tested all their equipment because I'm quite effects heavy so there's lots and lots of effects were put on it yeah and, and, and then it went out to broadcast and it was very well received and um, again I give the credit to Mitchell Paul, he come and said to me like you got to enter that for the BAFTAs because the, the weight of that and I'm like yeah yeah cool I'll do that and mm. we ended it and at the beginning of the job I said to all of my crew and whatnot I said we're going to win a BAFTA with this and they were going you're too arrogant why do you keep saying <laughs> and then, <laughs> I just want it no when we when we was in Spain mm. well, not, not Spain uh, Berlin when we was in Berlin filming all the back plates mm. black plates look so nice Every one we shot, I'm like, oh, this is going to be the BAFTA one. Oh, this is gonna be the one. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, I just man. knew, I just knew it was, I knew it was going to be. So when it went there and it won it, my the producers looked at me and said, don't say nothing. I said, I'm not going to say nothing. Well, there's mm. nothing to say in it. Look, I've got a BAFTA. <laughs> okay, BAFTA. <laughs> so I, I think, I think I kind of like see the, the relation between, because you're filming and you love filming. And at what point in your career did you get into filming? like making films do you know what's interesting about that statement is um, hmm. with creativity I don't see differences hmm. Hmm. our whole approach is at the core of a creative idea they're all the same so hmm. if you're making a music track if you're making some trainers if you're going to create a film the very seed idea is the same thing the thing that people get bogged down with is the different applications. Mm. Because in order to deliver the actual idea, you need to know a bit about the process of how to bring the thing into a 3D reality. Yeah. But a case in point to answer that question is as soon as computers could handle two, two seconds of video, I was trying to make films. Right. So right. I started making my first, my first music video I made at college. Mm. And I, because back then I used to rap quite heavily. I was in a rap group. I didn't even get into all that. But before I went to college, I was in a rap. So when I was at college, I took one of my songs, which was called 24-7 in London. Oh. And I went and filmed all around London and all these different things as a music video piece while at college. So I've always filmed. I've always done graphics. And I've always done, I've always done everything. Oh. I've always done that. Um, because I guess ignorance is bliss because I didn't see it as anything else. I just thought, oh, I have an idea. I'll make it as a song. Oh, I have yeah. an idea. I'll make it as a video. Oh, I have an idea. I'll make it as some clothing or a t-shirt mm. or whatever. Mm. Now, there's a, po there's a positive and a negative in that. Is one, you can spread yourself too thin. Okay. Um, but 
two, in, in today's world, with computers and whatnot, you can actually get a lot of this stuff done, but you still need people and teams and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I have a bit of empathy with Kanye West in that respect, is that once you're a true creative and you really understand the, the core of creativity, that the gem of the idea, it mm. just needs a vehicle of expression. Mm. And that vehicle can be a film or it can be what it's. So I've always done it, is the truth behind that. I've always filmed stuff and, and edited and done graphics, still graphics, print material, or tried to do a paint. I've always done it. There wasn't <laughs> a point I started doing it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and I hear there. that. I hear that. I think another question that comes to mind as you're speaking is the, the, the platform for expression and platform for publicity as well because it seems to me that when you go into the bbc that just opened doors for you in terms of how you could express yourself and the rest of it because you start from interactive services and then obviously segregate more into time-based executions um now in in this day and age right and i'm not dating you anything like you know that was that was um things change but in this day and age you 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 see the advent of YouTube and young people out there and obviously if people are saying look we're finding it hard to get into the institutions like the BBC the ITVs and the rest of it do you think as a creative individual we you, we still need like when I mean we okay let's say the younger ones do, do you think they still need this public institutions this big organizations to have the, the level of exposure you had um there's a positive and a negative mm. to that to that so the positive is if you can get that opportunity I would absolutely endorse it mm. because what what it's made me it's made me a, a monster in that respect like I know how things work mm. properly because there's, there's a hustle way of doing stuff and then there's a process way of doing stuff and both mm. of them have equal weight but once you know it you really do know it and I've been to different countries and filmed and done stuff and people have said stuff and then they've seen the end product and then they've realized this guy really knows his stuff mm. you know when I went over to Virgin Media TV that was what the designers was all saying about me it was like this guy really knows how to do this stuff like from yeah. the small idea right through all of the delivery processes to the finished product mm. so you do get that from those institutions without a doubt you get real process mm. however which is um, uh, a neg- uh, again a positive and there is a negative side, but the, uh, there is a massive opportunity called the internet that wasn't there when I was a young man hmm. and that means with our smartphones we can record and make stuff and everybody has an opportunity to see it if you're prepared to promote it hmm. now back in the day it would cost two million quid to get a satellite to do that same sure. thing sure now we can do it for kind of nothing so it's kind of like leveled the playing field that if you now are the man them on the wall for example them guys mm. sitting on the wall talking yeah. even though they're trained act- actors it gave them their own platform to present and have leverage mm. into get- getting other stuff like there's different like even rap man and his stuff yeah yeah his, his Shiloh videos has given him leverage because the audience came to him which then allowed BBC and all the rest of it to start investing money into his films so I think anybody that's waiting for that opportunity is kidding themselves mm. but anybody that's waiting for any opportunity is not really understanding what's going on 
Mm. Um, the negative side about doing it yourself is that if you don't have real people around you with experience to kind of say, no, do it like this or add this to it or that's really good what you've done there, you should do more of it, mm. then you can find yourself just burning out doing loads and loads of stuff that's not going to actually go anywhere. Mm, mm, you need you need some guidance. You need some guidance. So I wouldn't say to anybody, just go out there and do it yourself. The world's changed. No, that's bad advice. Mm. I would say seek people that have experience, that have done stuff like real stuff, really been there and really done it. Mm-hmm. That can give you the truth as well. You need people that will tell you the truth, and you have to park your ego, move mm-hmm. your ego out of the way because a lot of people in creative spheres want to put forward their own creative Mm. and if you're going into a place where you want someone to give you money for your creative um, you have to quickly realise you're in a commercial place you're not in a Mm. fine art place you're in a place Mm. where this piece of art is being made to achieve an objective for Mm. someone else so unless unless you've built a movement yourself and people want to buy your movement which is one in a billion who can do that to be honest Mm. you have to really be realistic with the odds which kind of segues into that whole business versus creativity thing (laughs) you've got to really know what you're trying to achieve Mm. I think I think it's a it's an interesting space to be in in terms of um, if you can find a brand to leverage on as, as a creative person and then that opens doors for you I think that's an interesting space. Equally, like you said, if you have been able to galvanize, you know, an audience, then it's, you know, that also puts you in an interesting space. But I guess it's kind of like spotting the opportunity and just taking advantage of it and also having emotional intelligence and knowing how to, in Nigerian parlance, package yourself, you know, for for the, yeah, for, yeah, the yeah. for the event, you know. Now, what, what you're saying about business is something that's very key. However... Um, when it comes to being a creative ind- individual, I know a lot of creative people who would not be very um, quick to jump on the business train. At the same time, at the same time, I, I also know creative people that want to start businesses or started. Now, here's one thing that sticks out from all your stories so far, and it doesn't have anything to do with you, but it's, I think it's something that I would love to hear your thoughts on. Some of the companies you mentioned, I they don't exist anymore all this and all they, were, they were all creative companies that were involved in post-production um like you know with we we know what happened to rushes yeah um and there are a few other companies and it's um i mean let's be honest not every business will succeed but it's very 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 particular about the creative industry we we hardly see companies that have stayed for years do you think do you think, um, as, as creative people, do you think we have what it takes to run a successful business? Do you think we should leave that to business people and we just focus on the creative? I think that we should leave it to business people. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I end the podcast. <laughs> okay, all right, so... All right. Okay. Now, let, let, let. Now, let's talk, man. Because here's 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 my thing, right? Here's my thing. Now, like you said, you know, all the companies, most of, I mean, I could 
if, would I be right to say all the companies you've mentioned, obviously besides the BBC, the ones you started with, the design studio, all that stuff, are they still functioning? Are they still running? Well, okay, so I worked at Red B, they're still around. Um, but no, what no, they've for, cleverly for the, done, they've evolved. Yeah. Um, no, but, but um, it's still attached to the BBC, aren't they? They're still, it's, you know, it's... If, well, if, do you think if Red yes, B was... So, yeah, go on. Yes and no, because you have to give credit where credit is due. Those people down at Red B are intelligent people. Um, I had great times working down there, and they're very smart, mm. you know, they're very clever. Mm-hmm. And they've had to evolve. They've got external clients. Mm. Um, they've got some internal clients, but they've got to put in tenders like everybody else and pitch like everybody else. Sure. And having, having worked with them, uh, they're very intelligent and I've learned a lot of my emotional in, uh, my my um, creative intelligence from those people you know how to okay. pitch you know we without giving away too many of their secrets mm. um, one of the key things in pitching is sometimes it's not about the visuals that you pitch it's the way that you're thinking that the client buys into mm-hmm. and I learned I learned that from those people and those people are very smart we would do when we were turning into a branding agency back in the day they hired actors to come in and train us to how to pitch brands to clients and we'd have to go mm, on a course nice. and nice. they're very clever people like I've got a lot of respect and time for those people so there's a reason why they're still around it's not Wait. just because of so, the BBC so okay so that's interesting now so they're around because of some of the things you mentioned would you say these were creative um, th- th- these were decisions made by the creative leadership or more driven no, by no, no, what, sorry to okay. cut what they did is what they did is they got in some very clever people that did consultancy work that mm. came from business spaces of creative so creative business spaces that came in and would force the issue because they had that epiphany that we're creatives we like mm. creating stuff yeah we're not hard-nosed business people yeah so there was a period and this is why it was a good place for me because this didn't happen over a month this happened over years of mm. the bbc um transforming from a public service provider in shedding some of its load to become leaner <clears throat> and some of the load shed were formed into companies which of which red b is one of those which came from bbc broadcast okay so i I have to give credit where credit's due. Yes, they've got a bit of a cushion in being BBC people and all that kind of stuff, but really, in order to survive, they're intelligent people. And they they employed people that were business savvy. And that's Mm. why I said my statement quite boldly. It's like anyone that you've seen survive out there, Mm. they have to have some business savvy people around them. Mm. You just have to. Because as creative people, we are turned on by creativity. Mm. We're not turn, turned on by uh, the bottom line. And I'm going to quote you in this next statement. Once we were having a deep <laughs> conversation on the phone, yeah, and I was on. banging on the business and money, and, and you said to me, Mark, Mark, if I wanted to, to be rich, I'd have been in finance. And yeah, I just went yeah. quiet. I was like, you know yeah. what? You're, you're right. You're bloody yeah. right. <laughs> I've got nothing to say about that. Trademark <laughs> that. Trademark that. <laughs> God, I've, I've got a t-shirt with that written on it I would have been in finance <laughs> if I wanted to be rich <laughs> oh bad so I think I think mm. I think there's a reality behind that and I always liken it to Blockbusters and Netflix sure you know while Blockbusters was there quite happy selling candy and, and popcorn and with their VHS tapes yeah they missed a massive opportunity which is Netflix sure 
so they didn't evolve and didn't understand the models were changing the times were changing and like this is my 10th year of running my company Mark One Group so I've been out here as a creative company for 10 years mm. and when I first came out of Virgin Media TV it was really it was plain sailing actually because we had a lot of work from Virgin and we had new clients and bits and pieces going on and we were trying to expand and all this stuff but after um, Virgin changed, Virgin got bought by Liberty Global, was a huge company, bought a part of Virgin Media, which affected everything in terms mm. of our clients, um, which affected our bottom line. We then had to shift what we were doing. And really, I had to fully understand what business was. Mm. And uh, it's not nice business. <laughs> this is not nice. Wait, no. So, so before you go into that, because what's very important about what you're saying now is, because so far we've heard about you, um, you know, being self, being employed, like fully employed. Now you made a transition to this business, and I'm happy that we're saying it at a time where we're talking about business and, and creativity. Now, you made a transition into running your own business. Why did you? At what time in your career did you do that, and why did you do that? And and what kind of confidence did you have to pull? Because right. it, it is a tricky thing to do. It's not a straightforward process. It's not just like you wake up one day and oh, I've got company. Like it, it's you needed to have clients available, or did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. No, well, basically, going back into my past, like my, as I said, my father and mother were entrepreneurs when I was younger, sure. so I was always around that energy. Okay. So while while at BBC, I would do a number of other project so one of the things I would do was I do lots of music video stuff and that as a two-pronged attack why I would do that one I wanted to learn how to be better at directing mm -hmm. and back then there was a great ground to cut my teeth yeah and two, and two as well when I went for a senior role in the BBC I showed them all the stuff that they hadn't seen before I was mm -hmm. like that's a whole story in its own right as well where yeah. I went for this role and because I'd known these people for years, this is the emotional intelligence we talk about. I, I said to the creative director who was interviewing me, I was like, look, um, when I come for the interview, I don't want any of you to act like you know me. And they said, Mark, don't be stupid. I said, I'm not being stupid, I'm being deadly serious. Mm. I don't want any of you to act like you know me. Mm. I'm gonna come in there as if I'm a new candidate. Mm. Right, and what was, in my, what was in my mind was the other designers that were going for the same role, I knew they were gonna just turn up in their normal clothes and mm -hmm. just be like talking to that knew them yeah. but my, fa my father always said don't be too familiar with people you know business is business and whatnot so I went to this interview I went in to work quite casual and for the interview I wore all white I had white trainers on white jeans white shirt <laughs> so Does when I walked work? in then <laughs> listen man I, I understand that perception to you I, I, I had jewelry on as well I had jewelry <laughs> you went from Mac Walters to Mac One, just just like yeah, man. You hit the nail on the head, man. You hit the I nail. That, I went for Mark Waters. I went to Mark Waters to Mark One. Like that, like. <laughs> <laughs> so when I went in there, I introduced mm. myself. Yeah, said, mm. oh, hi, my name's Mark. Nice to meet you guys. It's the first time. I hope you guys are having a good day. And all this, and they were all like really taken back. And one of the lead creative directors said. I can't believe you've dressed up for us. So wait, and so you knew, said, you knew everyone on the panel? Like, there was no stranger there? I've known them for years. They were my mates. Mm, nice. Yes, but I didn't I didn't want that familiarism. I wanted to get the job. So part of that presentation was me 
showing them that I've been directing music videos on the sly. <laughs> oh, wow, okay. Mm. That's how bold I was. I was like, you know what? I'm going to show them all my music videos and I'm going to cut a little trailer and show them it. So I went in there, and this is my point about knowing who you are and yeah. really understanding what the thing is. So I went in there looking like Puff Daddy mm. and pretended like none of them knew me, showed them all this stuff they'd never seen about me, and then they asked me two questions. They said, where do you see the future of television and where do you see the future of all this stuff going? Mm. So I said, look, this is before flat screen TVs and stuff. I said, look, mm. I see it one day, there's going to be a thin thing we call television. It's going to be thin enough to bolt to your ceiling and you're going to be able to lay in bed and watch television. They said, that's amazing. We didn't think of that. And I was like, and I also said, um, depending on what happens with the internet, everyone's going to have their own channel, including all the brands. Mm. And now mm. what it has literally come to, to pass mm. so that that interview not only did I get the job I got great money they just said look we're going to give you more money and then they actually called me because I was in the other building on the way back to the building and said look we're not going to wait till tomorrow to tell you you know you've got it um, we've never been in an interview as good as that that is the best interview we've ever been in so yeah. that's my whole point nice. about them. sometimes people say no opportunities and all that. They're not using their brains. Mm-hmm. Use brains. They don't understand who they are and what they are and what they have to offer. So to segue that into business now. Mm. So when I when I came out of, I was at Red Bee Media, which is a branding consultancy, and I was doing massive brands all over Europe, flying all over Europe, representing Red Bee. It was just phenomenal opportunity. It was great times. And redundancy came up. Okay. And it was quite a bit, quite a bit of money. Um, more money than I'd seen at that time. I was like, do you know what? I think I'm going to go for this. <laughs> and they didn't think I was going to go for it. And I went for it. And at the time, we were rebranding Virgin Television, who were okay. based down in um, were based down in London, in mm. in West End, mm. in Great Port- in Great Portland Street. And we'd done a quite a great job on that. We designed this character called Red, and we'd done all the stuff. Me and a designer called Cliff. Um, if Cliff listening to this, thumbs up, Cliff. He's a great designer. I think he's at Manchester United now. Okay. Um, did Virgin Media stuff, and Virgin Media's head of design um, was pregnant, and she mm. was going on maternity leave. And I didn't know this. And they they wanted me. They said, "Look, we want Mark to come in and be our head of design." Mm. Um, and we, if Mark comes in, we've got some other jobs we want to offer you on the back of that as well, and like channel brands and all this stuff that was tied into this. Stuff. So yeah. my management came and talked talk into a room and said, "What are you doing? Are you going to America with your mate, or what are you doing?" I said, no, I'm just going to go and set up a company and take some time out. I've worked too hard and whatever. And then they told me about the Virgin opportunity. Mm. So I got redundancy and went straight into head of design of Virgin Media. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Nice, nice. <laughs> and as, as that would happen, I was there for a year and a bit, year and a half or so. And uh, that ended in 2010. Hmm. And how that ended was really interesting because Sky came and bought Virgin Media hmm. TV. Hmm. They bought it at, at the end of my kind of contract. So it was kind of perfect. And while I was there, I'd done some amazing work with amazing people, intelligent hmm. people down as well. Um, and I enjoyed my time there. And I grew exponentially because my, my responsibility was huge. I was responsible for all the graphic output across all the channels. I was responsible hmm. for spend, how much money we would spend with external Mm. Um, design companies how much was in our budget I had to do the budgets and all this stuff so yeah. that that gave me an understanding of money as well because mm. prior to that time at 
the NDBC, I didn't really get involved with the money. Yeah. But while I was at Virgin, I had full control over all of our spend and all of our all of the stuff. Yeah. And, and so we would do a whole channel brand. I would present it to the whole company. So we did two or three presentations all day and all this kind of stuff. It was really, really a good, good experience. And so at the end of that, I wanted to go and set up my own thing. And the people that were still at Virgin liked me and started to give me lots of work. Okay. Um, in particular, that I put thumbs up to is a guy called Jeff Dodds, who's okay. um, I believe he's the COO of uh, Virgin Media Mobile at the moment. Okay. And he's a very inspirational guy, a great guy. He would give me lots and lots of work, and there's lots of his people within the Virgin sphere would give us lots and lots of work. So we did lots and lots of work for them. Um, mm. so for the first three or four years, we had lots of work and people working for us and stuff. Yeah, this um, is the Mark One, Mark One group. This is Mark One group, and, yeah. and the, ish, the issue I found is I hated doing all the paperwork stuff. This okay. is the business stuff, mm. and there's two as there's two aspects to business. There's the creation of new work. Actually, mm -hmm. there's three aspects. Three aspects: creation of new work. There's the negotiation for to getting your money after you've done the work, mm -hmm. and then and then there's the um, there's the admin side of all of that. Hmm. which is the real guts of the company and I truly found out that I'm not I don't I can do it to a high level but it's not me hmm. Hmm. it's tire out like yeah. it. not so much you tire out that side okay. of the brain isn't developed for that it's developed for creative wild indulgence to create great stuff and whatnot whereas hmm. pedantic detail that is that is logical is that side is undeveloped in most creatives and that's why I always say you need business people because business people, that's where they're at. They're at that logical, let's get things done and, and it's like, let's get all these forms sorted out and get all mm. the, the T's crossed and the, the I's dotted. Whereas a creative doesn't want to do that. Right? It's not their preferred option of getting up in the morning to do all that stuff. So any creative that is kidding themselves that they like that, is, they're mm. not true creatives. This is the end of part one. All right, now that's a very interesting conversation we're having, and I can't wait for you guys to hear the, the conclusion in part two. Uh, before I let you go, here's a question, and I need you guys to let me know what you think. Can a creative person, a real creative person, like someone working in the creative industry, be an effective business person? Um, if you have any thoughts on this, shoot me some comments, some feedback, and also follow and subscribe to the old podcast part two is out next week so please stay tuned you've been listening to the o guys stay safe and catch you in the next episode of the o